This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Deadly Therapy. In these episodes, I detail cases of people who sought help from experts but instead met their demise in strange and tragic ways. In today's story, a young girl grows up in poverty and instability and ends up in the foster care system. After being adopted and having trouble adjusting to her new home, she is subjected to a new type of therapy with tragic results. This is the case of Candace Newmaker. When Candace Elmore Newmaker was born in Lincolnton, North Carolina in 1989. She would be at least the fourth generation of her family, born into poverty, dysfunction, and instability. While she was greatly loved by her mother and grandparents, no one was quite equipped, due to their own struggles, to provide Candace with a stable home. Candace's maternal grandmother, Mary Clendenin, was abandoned by her own mother when she was just a toddler. She was left on a street corner with her older sister and soon found herself in foster care. Foster care is a system in which a minor has been placed into a ward, group home, or private home of a state-certified caregiver, referred to as a foster parent, or with a family member approved by the state. It's a government-run safeguard that is designed to help abused, neglected, or abandoned children, for example, when their parents are unable to care for them. But for many children, it creates even more instability in their lives. Children can be moved between foster homes, group homes, and other types of facilities for any number of reasons, and often are. Mary would be shuttled to 17 different foster homes over the years. When the child reaches their majority, in most places at the age of 18, they are no longer considered wards of the court. At that point, they age out of the foster care system and if there are no transitional or extended care programs available, and often there are not, a young person is left to fend on their own. Many young girls who are taken from their own families and placed into foster care have a great need for the security of a stable family. Because of this, some begin their own families at a very young age. This was Mary's story. She first married at the age of 16. Before long, she was the mother of two. First came Angie, and then Albert. But the teenage marriage didn't last, and Mary was again on her own. But this time, things were even harder. Now she had two babies depending on her. Mary, with little education and two small children, had difficulty securing employment. As a result, she soon found herself living on the streets and sleeping in her car. Aware that she had few resources and little to no support to raise her children, she decided to give them over to the state so they wouldn't grow up on the streets. Angie and Albert now, too, entered the foster care system. Angie, for one, did not do well in foster care. She acted out angrily with her foster parents and other children. This was her coping mechanism for feeling sad, scared, and rejected. Many of her foster parents told Angie's social workers they couldn't handle the angry girl. Angie was shuffled around to several foster homes and group homes. She ended up placed in over a dozen in all. One of the places she was sent to was designated to house emotionally disturbed children. Angie admits that she was an angry child. In her opinion, the foster parents she was placed with, quote, didn't love me, I was just a paycheck, unquote. So she refused to obey them or cooperate with their rules. As a result, she was labeled a problem child. Her outbursts became more violent as she got older. Her case went before the court several times, with social workers trying to find Angie a suitable placement. Finally, a judge declared Angie a Willie M. case. A class-action lawsuit named after Willie M., a teenage plaintiff in a North Carolina case, went before the court in 1979. The suit was in response to North Carolina's lack of appropriate placement for aggressive, emotionally disturbed children in the foster care system whose behavior was the result of mental illness. These children would either be shuttled from foster home to foster home, 
or end up housed indefinitely in juvenile detention centers. Worse, some of these minors were sent to adult psychiatric facilities, where they might be victimized by other patients. The court required the state to provide better and more appropriate services to children with mental disorders that made them prone to violent and defiant behavior. North Carolina then invested hundreds of millions of dollars in care that included therapeutic foster homes with foster parents trained how to respond and deal with these children. When Angie was declared a Willie M. case, it meant that she had been deemed mentally ill by the courts and was now eligible to receive long-term treatment and be housed in a facility that was equipped to address her behavior issues. But Angie was ashamed of being labeled mentally ill and rebelled against being placed in a home or facility for the emotionally disturbed. She also still wanted to be with her mother, Mary. She and Mary had tried to reunite several times, but Angie was rebellious and Mary had no patience with her. They fought like cats and dogs, and Mary would either throw up her hands in frustration or Angie would run away again. So grasping for the only solution she could think of, Angie, like her mother before her, became a teenage bride. Angie became pregnant for the first time when she was still a teen. She'd given birth to a baby boy at the age of 16, but knowing that she had no way to care for him, she had given the baby up for adoption at birth. Now at age 17, Angie married 23-year-old Todd Elmore. Elmore, from Winston-Salem, had a problematic history himself. He'd been a petty criminal since his youth. Sheriff's deputies in Lincoln County knew Elmore well. One said the lad couldn't make it an entire month without lying, stealing, and generally being a pain in the ass. He's a twerp, one deputy was quoted as saying. Angie admits she didn't love Elmore. He was merely a way to get out of the foster care system and away from her mother. She was, however, in love with the idea of being a mother. She planned her first child and couldn't wait to start her little family. When she became pregnant, she played classical music for the baby she was carrying and read to her out loud from children's books. She learned that this would make her baby smart and wanted to give her child every opportunity she could so the baby might have a better life than she had experienced. By this time, Angie's mother Mary had married a man named David Davis. Davis would be the one constant in Angie in her children's lives. Davis was a mechanic who worked for the State Department of Transportation and was a good man. He excitedly anticipated the birth of his first grandchild and was at the hospital with a video camera the day Candace was born. On November 19, 1989, Candace Tiara Elmore made her arrival. She was a healthy baby girl, weighing in at nine pounds. Her step-grandfather David gave her the middle name Tiara, explaining that this baby girl was, quote, like a precious jewel. Angie would give birth to two more children in the next three years. Chelsea was born in 1991, and Michael followed in 1992. But while Angie loved her children, she struggled to raise them. Without a high school education or job skills, she was barely able to keep a roof over their heads. Todd offered her more trouble than help. He couldn't hold a job for long and often sabotaged Angie's ability to work, disappearing when she needed to get to work, leaving her without childcare, or starting a fight at the worst possible times. Angie worked several jobs, including at a fast food restaurant and a nursing home, but times were tough. She thought she could improve her earning potential by learning a trade. She began a cosmetology course at a beauty school, but was unable to complete the program and dropped out. Like most people living in poverty, the couple moved often, uprooting the children constantly, which caused even more instability. When they got behind on their rent, they would move again, looking for a cheaper place to live. But before long, the cycle began all over again. David Davis tried to help Angie and his grandchildren as much as he could, bringing groceries or helping with the rent. Angie's mother and stepfather defend her while admitting that the children lived an unstable lifestyle. Those children were always clothed, always fed, always loved, Mary and David would later say. But financial woes, immaturity, and lack of coping skills led to high stress in the home, which in turn led to fights and arguments between Angie and Todd. Police were called to intervene more than a few times, 
with Todd being cited at least once for domestic violence. However, charges were dropped, Angie believes, because she didn't have a way to get to court to testify against him. Angie decided to leave Todd when Candace was only three and her other two children were still in diapers. They lived in a battered women's shelter for a time. Angie says that from her earliest recollection, Candace was very protective of her mother and siblings. She cared for her siblings like she was their mother, and if she saw her father hurting her mom, she'd intervene. She had a temper, Angie recalls, but it was because she was so protective of me. Candace was also very close to her grandparents, especially her grandfather. She called him Papa, and she was his little princess. Both her mother and grandparents took scores of photos of the little girl with the wavy brown hair and wide smile. Photos taken with her troll dolls, at her birthday parties blowing out candles, outside running in her grandparents' yard, all show a sweet, sometimes shy, sometimes scrappy little kid. But life continued to be chaotic for Angie and her children. She would reconcile with Todd, mostly out of desperation, and the cycle of moving, pawning items to pay the rent, finding and losing jobs, and moving again would continue. Angie, having lived most of her life with the state as her parent, now continued to be monitored as a young mother. Someone reported seeing her daughter Chelsea with scrapes on her back. Angie was questioned by a social worker. She explained that the trailer they were living in had a faulty back door that didn't latch properly, and Chelsea had tumbled out. This, in other circumstances, would be a normal childhood boo-boo, but Angie, having been diagnosed as someone with a mental illness and prone to violence, was not given the benefit of the doubt. As well, the children's father had been arrested for domestic violence, and it was incumbent upon the assigned social worker to ensure that they were safe. After being questioned by social services, Angie grew worried that they would try and take her children away. She and Todd packed up and moved out of the county to avoid this possibility. This only served to make them look as if they had something to hide. Months later, when Angie and Todd were tracked down, Candace, Chelsea, and Michael were removed from their parents' custody and placed into foster care for the first time. The children were scared, and Angie was devastated. Because Candace hadn't been the child with the injuries, she was returned to her mother, but Angie was required to attend counseling with her daughter. During one of the counseling sessions, Candace asked her mother to promise her that she wouldn't be taken from her again. But Angie couldn't make that promise. As she saw it, the Division of Social Services had all the power. Angie admits that the second time Candace was removed from her custody was because of a fight between her and her mother. Angie and Mary got into a big fight, and Mary left in the car. Candace was attending a state-run daycare center at the time, and Angie didn't have a way to pick her up at the end of the day. She also had no phone, so when the school couldn't reach her, they contacted Angie's social worker. The social worker called Mary, who, still upset, told her to, quote, keep Candace overnight until things cool down, unquote. Now a report was made against Angie for child neglect. As a result, at the age of five, Candace became a ward of the county and entered foster care. Candace Elmore had been through a lot during her five short years on Earth. Poverty, domestic violence, frequent moves, and family squabbles were all part of her daily life. But Candace was a happy and resilient child. All she wanted was to be with her mom, grandma, and her papa, David, who even amidst their own challenges, loved and cherished her. But now the county had decided that neither her parents nor grandparents were fit to raise her and placed her into foster care. Candace did not take well to this change. She was scared, confused, and angry. She went on long crying fits and nothing would console her. She threw temper tantrums and frequently had angry outbursts at her foster parents and the other children in these homes. Like her mother before her, Candace only had one coping mechanism when forced to be away from home and feeling scared. Anger. Anger is classified as a secondary emotion by psychologists because we tend to resort to anger in order to protect ourselves or cover up more vulnerable feelings. The primary emotion might be fear, anxiety, or sadness, but this can lead a person to resort to anger when feeling helpless. Anger helps a person feel more powerful in the moment. Acting out in anger may keep others at arm's length or cause them to fear you. 
Both of these outcomes may help a child feel less vulnerable. Anger was frequently employed by her family of origin, and Candace was familiar with it. Her mother and father fought. Her grandmother and mother also had angry outbursts and arguments with each other. Candace learned this coping skill early on, but it caused problems once she was placed in foster care. She was shuffled around when her foster parents decided they couldn't handle her. Angie tried to get her children back, but without a good job or a decent place for the children to live, she was still labeled an unfit parent. The children's grandparents wanted to raise the children themselves, but would have had to jump through a lot of hoops to be considered an appropriate placement by the state, even though they were family. Mary had a spotty background of her own, coming out of the foster care system, and the fact that her own child had been placed in foster care didn't bode well either. While it pained them to admit it, David and Mary believed Angie's children might be better placed in another family where they might have a better life. They also worried about the children's father coming back into their lives. No, they thought it was better for the children to have a fresh start. Candace remained in foster care, and then her case went before a judge to determine if she would ever be returned to her mother. The judge reviewed the social worker's reports, listing Candace's angry outbursts and rebelliousness. Angie was now 24, but the judge emphasized her past behavior of aggression and rebelliousness while in foster care. Like mother, like daughter, another Willie M., the judge said, before terminating Angie's parental rights. Angie would later grow upset and angry, remembering the judge's words that day. Candace had always been a good girl, she said, but the judge decided differently. Quote, she was another flaw in the system to them. She was a system child to them. And I know what it feels like. I know what she was going through, Angie said. Many children who aren't infants remain in foster care until they reach the age of majority, like Angie. But Candace would be considered one of the lucky ones. At the age of six, she was adopted by a woman who wanted to raise Candace as her own daughter. Jean Newmaker possessed the desire and the resources to adopt Candace, and soon she would begin the new life her grandparents had wished for her. Jean Elizabeth Newmaker grew up in Warren, Pennsylvania, surrounded by all the privileges Candace never had. Her grandfather made his fortune in the furniture business, and her family was socially prominent in the area. She was a serious student who was involved in student council and several clubs during her high school years. She attended first the University of Rochester and then went on to receive a master's degree in nursing from the University of Virginia. The one dark spot to her otherwise happy life was her father's drinking problem. John Newmaker had been arrested twice for DUIs when a judge decided that he needed to attend rehab and placed him in a state psychiatric hospital. While there, he would meet a woman and leave Jean's mother to marry her when Jean was 28 years old. Jean was a natural caretaker, which is why she was so drawn to the nursing field. Her skills were sadly put to use in 1986 when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. She died that same year. Her father also fell ill and succumbed to lung disease the following year. After graduation, Jean took a job as a nurse practitioner at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. She always loved working with children and decided to specialize in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition. She purchased a large two-story brick home in Durham with money bequeathed to her from her grandparents' trust. The stately five-bedroom home located in a serene family neighborhood, was missing something. Jean, now 42 years old, had never married, and she longed to have a child. In the summer of 1996, she was given that opportunity. On June 14, 1996, Jean Newmaker adopted six-year-old Candace Elmore. Candace was given a new birth certificate listing Jean as her mother and Durham, North Carolina as her place of birth. She was also given the new name of Candace Elizabeth Newmaker, her middle and last names matching those of her new mother. It was as if Candace Tiara Elmore had never existed. But Jean Newmaker was by all accounts a great mom. She took two months off of work after adopting Candace and threw herself into being a mom full-time. She knew they would need this time to get to know each other and bond as mother and daughter. Neighbors and friends in Durham 
said they never saw Jean without Candace or the other way around. They were always together, with Jean taking her new daughter to school each day, picking her up each afternoon, and attending all school parties and functions. When school was out of session, Candace traveled with her new mom. They took trips to the Appalachian Mountains, to Florida to swim with the dolphins, and spent time together hiking, whitewater rafting, and horseback riding. Other parents were impressed by Jean's devotion to her new daughter. There was nothing that child did not have, neighbor Margaret Addison told the Denver Rocky Mountain News. There was nothing she did not do. Candace was enrolled in first grade in the fall, and at first was nervous and insecure. She peered inside her new classroom and said there was a boy inside, and she didn't like boys. She refused to enter. Jean patiently explained that he wasn't a boy, but her new teacher, Ray Albin. Albin introduced himself to the dark-haired little girl and would later report that he quickly grew fond of her. Never a behavior problem in the classroom, Albin says that, in fact, Candace was kind and friendly. She was drawn to the special education students at the school and always offered to help, sometimes pushing the children who were in wheelchairs to their classrooms. She also loved animals, and soon, the new makers had several animals in their home. Most were strays found by Candace. Jean discovered that Candace loved horses, so she enrolled her in equestrian classes and leased her a horse when she was in the second grade. Candace was able to spend time at the stables riding and caring for her horse. Candace made friends at school and had a core group of besties she went roller skating with and attended their slumber parties. It seemed like an idyllic life for a little girl. But behind closed doors, Jean would later admit there were problems. Candace had still not warmed to her, even a year later. To a few close friends, Jean described Candace as a handful. Later, Jean would lament the fact that Candace would not allow her to hold her and wouldn't look her in the eye. Candace had acted similarly when first introduced to her classmates. She'd snapped at them and told them not to look at her or touch her. This was pretty obviously a self-protective behavior to her new situation. But while Jean thought Candace would come around and bond with her over time, it didn't happen. Candace also exhibited behavior problems at home, according to Jean. She said Candace could be mean, cruel, and violent. She would destroy things and even set fires in the house. No one outside of Jean ever reported witnessing this type of behavior from Candace. Jean began trying to address the problem by taking Candace to doctors, psychologists, and counselors over the ensuing years. She was prescribed medications, including Dexedrine for ADD, the antidepressant Effexor, and an antipsychotic, Risperdal. One doctor Jean consulted with at Duke University, Dr. Avi Larschwitz, said, This kid had been through a lot. I don't think she was a normal happy kid. She could smile and be real cute. Then she could be mean. It was like having the average 18-year-old adolescent in your house. Dr. Lashwitz chalked up Candace's behavior as a defense mechanism for going through so many placements while in foster care. Jean had done her homework, and to her, the symptoms Candace was exhibiting correlated to a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. The term reactive attachment disorder, or RAD, is said to describe children who have been subject to neglect or abuse in their formative years and have failed to establish the expected emotional bonds with primary caregivers. Symptoms of this disorder are listed as irritability, sadness, fearfulness, and difficulty interacting with adults or peers. These children rarely seek out or respond to comfort when distressed, show little positive affect, and may be prone to angry outbursts or crying jags without explanation. Many children were being diagnosed with attachment disorders in the 1980s, after the boom in international adoptions. Children adopted from certain countries came from orphanages where they may have had limited contact with an adult caregiver and began their lives not forming attachments or emotionally bonding with a caring adult. While symptoms Candace exhibited may have looked similar to RAD, Candace had bonded with both her mother, grandmother, and grandfather as an infant and into her preschool years. Some speculate that Jean may have had unrealistic expectations of her newly adopted daughter and believed that all she needed to do was shower Candace with love and affection and the girl would reciprocate her affection. Candace was still grieving the loss of her family of origin, and while she may have felt gratitude and possibly some affection for Jean, 
she wasn't ready to allow her to replace her biological mother so quickly. I used to counsel kids and families and saw a lot of blended families in my practice. One thing I learned was that even when kids liked their step-parents, they would often treat them terribly, talking back, refusing to follow rules, and just plain acting like little buttheads. Were they bad? Maybe. But for the most part, their behavior was largely in response to feeling disloyal to their biological parent. Especially if the child grew to like the step-parent, they felt like this was wrong in some way, because they felt they were being disloyal to the bio-parent, whom they also loved, of course. So they would double down on being shitty towards the step. I can feel some of you nodding as you hear these words. You know what I mean. Mad respect to all of you who are step-parents or adoptive parents. It's a tough job. Even when you're right, you're wrong. Know what I mean? Anyway, my advice to step-parents who were dealing with this issue was to know that, first of all, this was normal. Secondly, to be patient. Also, they might benefit from altering their expectations. Rather than expecting their blended family to be the Brady Bunch, they may benefit from being more realistic. Yes, the child should be respectful towards the new parent, but they couldn't expect them to love or even like them right away. But Jean felt there was something wrong with Candace, and she sought out ways to remedy the situation. She sought advice from experts in the fields of child psychology, behavior issues, and mood disorders. In October of 1999, Jean attended a conference held by the Association for the Treatment and Training in the Attachment of Children. There, Jean heard case studies presented by psychologists and talked to parents of children with RAD, and finally felt validated. She had tried to talk to other parents she knew about her challenges with Candace, but would get advice like, be patient, or I'm sure she'll come around, or I've never noticed any serious problems with her behavior. It made her feel frustrated and like a failed parent. At the conference, Jean heard accounts of children who, to her, sounded just like Candace. They were described as often charming to others, but terrors in their own homes. They were manipulative and would rebel, resist, and defy everything put to them by their parents. Their main goal was, above all else, to be in control, it was explained. They could resort to destruction of property or even violence. This often left parents at their wit's end and feeling isolated. Parents of RAD kids also spoke at the conference about never receiving any of the perks of being a parent. No hugs from their kids, no affection or positive response to anything they did for them. Jean could totally relate to these parents and was now sure that Candace was suffering from an attachment disorder. Before leaving the conference, she consulted with a therapist named Bill Goebel. Goebel, without meeting Candace, but based on speaking with Jean and her answers on the assessment form, diagnosed Candace as a fairly severe case of attachment disorder. He suggested she take her daughter to see Connell Watkins at the Attachment Center in Evergreen, Colorado. Jean spoke with Watkins several times and got more information about the type of therapy she and the Attachment Center advocated. Watkins explained that children who didn't receive consistent love and care as infants experienced everything as a crisis. If they were hungry, wet, or lonely, and their needs weren't met by their caretakers, they learned that no one could be trusted. The only way to feel secure is to feel in control, so everything becomes a battle between the child and adult caretakers. The children learn to be cunning and manipulative and may grow up to be violent, antisocial, and dangerous if not treated, Watkins explained. The way these children were reprogrammed at the attachment center, she explained, was by the use of holding therapy. The child lies across the lap of the parent or therapist or both. Their arms and legs might be restrained as well. As the child begins to fight against the physical control of their bodies, the adult tightens their grip. The goal of this is to show the child that someone can control them, but they're still safe. Watkins gave Jean testimonials from parents who said the therapy was a godsend and had helped them finally bond with their child and restored harmony in their homes. Jean was excited and hopeful that this therapy might work for her and Candace. She signed a contract with Watkins to take 10-year-old Candace to Colorado for a two-week therapy program at the cost of $7,000. The attachment center was located in Connell Watkins' two-story house in the town of Evergreen. Watkins was an unlicensed psychotherapist who trained under Dr. Foster Klein, a pioneer in the field of attachment disorder. In part, traveling to the attachment center appealed to Jean 
because she would be staying in a private home with one of Watkins' assistants instead of a hotel. She thought Candace would become more angry during the therapy sessions than she was at home and didn't want to stay alone with her at a hotel for the two-week time period. Candace would be housed apart from Jean at the home of Britta St. Clair, Watkins' office manager. St. Clair and her fiancé, Jack McDaniel, were designated as temporary foster parents for Candace. She was told to address McDaniel as Daddy Jack. McDaniel was also hired to write daily reports on Candace's therapy. Neither Britta St. Clair nor Jack McDaniel had education or training in counseling or therapy. On April 10, 2000, Candace's therapy began, first with a visit to Dr. John Alston, a psychiatrist, to be assessed. He would oversee any medications Candace was taking during the therapy. She had been taken off all of her medications except one before arriving in Evergreen. Her dosage of Risperdal, an antipsychotic, sometimes prescribed to treat children who were excessively irritable or aggressive, was increased. She was taken off her other antipsychotic meds, as well as her ADD medication and her antidepressant. Later, the clinic staff would say Candace became emotionally withdrawn after her medications were changed. The two-week program would require daily therapy sessions for a total of 30 hours. Connell Watkins was assisted by Julie Ponder, a therapist who was licensed in California, but not Colorado. The first holding therapy sessions were conducted by Watkins and Ponder. Candace was held cradled face-up on the therapist's lap. In a typical session, the therapist holds the child's chin with one hand, forcing eye contact. The next part is more controversial and not even advocated by all therapists who practiced holding therapy at the time, but Watkins was an advocate of the more confrontational style of the therapy. In the holding therapy that Watkins practiced, once the child is physically restrained, the therapist begins to goad the child to trigger their anger. They may taunt them in a kind of who's in charge now challenge. Children, of course, often resist and begin to fight and try to get free of the therapist. The therapist just continues to hold on tighter, allowing the child to vent, but not giving in to them. The final stage is called the joy of surrender, when the child stops fighting and allows their rage to dissipate. They are cradled in the arms of the therapist, and the therapy is successful when the child realizes that they have given up control and are still safe. Critics say that this type of therapy, rather than helping a child, can further traumatize them and creates a trauma bond, as in hostage and captor. Candace experienced a week of holding therapy, but Jean later reported that progress had not gone as well as they'd hoped. Watkins could not get her to engage or fight back. She did not get angry or lash out, even when they tried to goad her into anger by saying her mother Angie had abandoned her and didn't love her. On April 17th, after seven days of therapy, Candace was put back on Effexor her antidepressant. Dr. Alston said this was to counter her dissociation or lack of connection with her feelings. They then tried another method called compression therapy. Candace was made to lie down on a mat and was wrapped in a sheet, leaving only her head uncovered. They then placed large cushions on either side of her. Jean was to lie on top of her daughter, distributing her weight across the cushions. She was to make eye contact with Candace while physically placing herself in control of her. After a little over an hour had passed, Candace was unwrapped and told to crawl over to Jean, who was now sitting in a chair. She was then to sit on her lap while her mother held her. Jean was given a plate of food and told to feed Candace as if she were an infant. Candace complied, and Jean was overcome with emotion. It was the first time Candace had allowed her to hold her or make eye contact with her. The next day, Watkins decided to up the stakes a little more. This time, they would conduct a rebirthing session. Rebirthing is a form of therapy that was controversial and used by only a handful of therapists at the time. A type of psychodrama, it simulates a person being pushed out of the womb at birth. The theory is that those who have experienced early trauma can be reborn symbolically and get a fresh start in life. The way rebirthing was originally performed was by having the patient wrapped up in a blanket with their head exposed. Others then pressed on pillows placed around them to simulate birth contractions. But just months before Candace arrived at the attachment center, Connell Watkins was trained in a more extreme variation of the therapy from Douglas Gosney, 
a licensed marriage and family therapist from California. In this version, the child is wrapped like a mummy from head to foot. After Connell Watkins learned this technique, Douglas Gosney stayed in Evergreen for a time, and they performed it with a half a dozen attachment center patients. Since then, Watkins used it several more times with patients and now thought it would be appropriate for Candace. On April 18th, Candace arrived at 9 a.m. to begin her day of therapy. She was asked to draw some pictures as she spoke with therapist Julie Ponder, who began to explain the rebirthing session that would be conducted that day. A video camera was mounted on a tripod in the corner of the room and would record the entire morning's events as they unfolded. On the video, Candace is seen yawning several times and says that she is tired because she'd had a nightmare the night before. She remembered that in the dream, she was being murdered. She talks about a vague memory of when she was very young, where her birth mother had, quote, dropped her out of a second-story window, unquote. Ponder asks Candace if she wants to be reborn to her new mother. Candace says yes, because she wants to be safe and doesn't want to be dropped out of windows. Ponder begins to tell her about how the rebirthing will go. Being a baby is hard. Being born is hard, Ponder tells her. You must scream and cry, because that's how a baby does it. You must look for your mother, reach for her out of the womb. You will have lots of air to breathe, she assures her. Candace now sits on a pad on the floor and removes her shoes. She then is told to stand up, and Ponder puts a queen-size blue flannel sheet on the floor. She is told to lie down on her left side in a fetal position, which Candace does. She is wrapped tightly by Ponder, who gathers the four corners of the sheet at the top of Candace's head and twists them together. Now Connell Watkins enters the room and props four pillows into a tent over Candace's body. Jean and Jack McDaniel also enter the room now. Britta St. Clair comes in pushing Tammy, her foster daughter, in a wheelchair. Why Tammy is there is never explained. Watkins sits at Candace's feet. St. Clair sits with her back against Candace's knees. McDaniel lies against Candace's chest. Ponder is positioned at Candace's head, holding the sheet tightly closed in her left hand. Jean is told to stay near Candace's head where she is supposed to emerge. Now four adults, with a cumulative weight of over 650 pounds, are pushing against all four sides of the 70-pound girl. After just a few minutes, Candace can be heard getting frustrated. Whoever is pushing on my head, it's not helping, Candace says. Ten minutes in, she is ready to give up. I can't do it. I can't breathe, Candace repeats several times. Then Candace says she's going to die and begs for air. Watkins and Ponder both keep pushing against her, telling her that being born is, quote, the hardest thing that you do, unquote. Now the adults reposition themselves, pushing even more force against Candace. Watkins braces her feet against a couch to push harder. Ponder pushes against a brick fireplace hearth. Please stop pushing, Candace begs. I can't breathe. What Candace doesn't do is get angry. She doesn't scream, threaten, rage, and thrash around. She remains compliant, but continues to insist she can't do it, and she can't breathe. The two therapists demand that she try harder, even when Candace says, Okay, I'm dying. I'm sorry. Rather than becoming alarmed or check on her, the adults use the confrontational tactics Watkins advocates as necessary to break through a rebellious child's need to be in control. You want to die? Watkins yells at Candace. Okay, then die. Go ahead, die right now. All four adults continue to push against Candace. At this point, you might expect that Jean, observing, might begin to grow worried and intervene. Instead, she is becoming upset because she feels rejected. Candace isn't trying to be reborn to her, and she is disappointed. Watkins tells Jean she warned her it might be like this. Kids try to get out of doing the hard work of being reborn by saying they can't breathe or that they have to go to the bathroom, she reminds her. Jean stays quiet. At 20 minutes into the session, Candace pleads for oxygen and says she's going to vomit. Go ahead, Ponder responds. At 30 minutes into the rebirthing session, Candace goes quiet. Ponder and Watkins order her to scream for her life. She makes choking or gagging sounds, but says no. The adults reposition themselves and continue pushing. Ponder tells Jack McDaniel to reposition himself so Candace really has to fight for air. He does so, 
moving himself against the pillow that is over Candace's head. Ten more minutes pass. Candace makes no sound. Jean finally speaks up. Baby, do you want to be reborn, she asks. Weakly, Candace answers, no. It's the last word she'll say. Ponder comments that she is, quote, stuck in there in her puke and poop, unquote, acknowledging that she knows Candace has vomited and defecated inside the blanket. Still, no one moves to help her. Ten more minutes pass. She's breathing fine, Watkins comments, although how she could know that is anyone's guess. Seven more minutes pass. Ponder places a hand inside the blanket and comments that it's wet inside and says she's sweaty in there, quote, which is good, unquote. Watkins makes a gesture towards Ponder, asking her if Candace is breathing. Ponder says she isn't sure. I touched her face and it's just sweaty, she admits. There is still no sound coming from Candace. Watkins now tells Jean she should leave the room. Candace is able to pick up on your sorrow, she explains. Jean goes upstairs to another room to watch the rest of the session on a TV monitor. Watkins leaves with Jean for a moment who is upset and crying that Candace is not trying to be reborn to her. Watkins tells her not to give up before returning to the therapy room where the session continues. Six more minutes pass and Watkins asks Jack McDaniel and Britta St. Clair to also leave the room. They join Jean. Watkins and Ponder continue with the session, pushing on Candace for four more minutes. Almost 50 minutes have passed, and about 10 since Candace's last word was uttered. They finally decide to unwrap her from the blanket. Oh, there she is, Watkins says, still treating Candace as if she's being rebellious and goading her to react. Quote, she's sleeping in her vomit, unquote, still not sounding concerned. She calls Candace's name once, twice. There's no response. At 10.53 a.m., Jean runs into the room. Candace's face is blue and she isn't breathing. Jean begins to administer CPR, assisted by Ponder. Watkins calls 911 at 10.56 a.m. Paramedics arrive within 10 minutes and are met in the front yard by Jack McDaniel, who tells them they were conducting a rebirthing session and had left the girl alone for five minutes and when they returned, found her not breathing. The paramedics find the little girl lying on the floor with two women working over her. She is blue, cool to the touch, not breathing, and had no pulse. Her pupils are fixed and dilated, her eyes full of red spots. She's been down for more than 10 minutes, they gauged. They suspected asphyxia. The prognosis appeared poor. Paramedics continued to work on reviving Candace for 15 more minutes. They detected a small pulse so they called for an airlift to Children's Hospital in Denver. By the next morning, however, Candace would be pronounced brain dead. The official report would read that her severe brain injury was due to mechanical asphyxiation, which occurred while she was restrained during therapy sessions. Connell Watkins was quick to say that Candace's death was an unforeseen and terrible accident. But the videotape, which had recorded the entire event, told a different story to investigators the Jefferson County District Attorney's Office would say it wasn't an accident, but a horrible crime against a helpless little girl. Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder were arrested a month later on May 18th. The two assistants, Jack McDaniel and Britta St. Clair, were arrested the next day. They were charged with knowingly or recklessly committing child abuse resulting in death. They all pled not guilty. Jean Newmaker was charged with child abuse and neglect resulting in death, a lesser charge, but still one that could result in 4 to 16 years in prison. Supporters rallied around both Connell Watkins and Jean Newmaker. The proponents of rebirthing therapy and the families of the children who'd said they'd been helped by Watkins all defended the therapist who they reported had worked miracles with their children. They also defended Jean Newmaker, saying that she had just been trying to help her child. The community in Durham grieved for the sweet curly-haired girl who loved animals. They at first weren't told how Candace had died, but when the news of the tragic rebirthing session came out, they couldn't believe Jean Newmaker could have known it was so dangerous. She adored that girl, they all said. It was such a tragedy, 
and they were sure Jean was suffering Candace's loss greatly. They pulled together to offer her their help and support, but she wasn't speaking to anyone and remained locked away in her home. Candace's biological family was not informed about her tragic death. It wasn't until five months after Candace's funeral that Angie was told by a reporter what had happened to her little girl. Angie Elmore, now 29, immediately began to sob and hurried to call her mother Mary, telling her to come quick. When Mary arrived, Angie ran to her and blurted out the news of Candace's death. Mary began to scream, and the two women leaned on each other for support, barely making it to Angie's porch before Mary started to collapse. After pulling herself together, Angie told the reporter regarding her daughter's adoptive mother, What she did was cuckoo. She played God with my child. She didn't give up her children, she clarified. The social workers took them away. Angie said, I told them, if you take her away from me, it'll kill her. And that's exactly what they did. Candace's two younger siblings had also been adopted. Angie didn't know where they were, but only knew that they had been adopted together. Angie had since had two more children with a man named Larry. Larry Jr. had just turned four, and Andrew, her sixth child, was born just 18 days before Candace's death. She and Larry had since split up, and she was raising the boys on her own. Later, the couple would share custody of their children. All five adults were charged in the death of Candace Elmore Newmaker. In 2001, Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder were tried together. They had both taken the stand in their defense and came across as cold and unfeeling to the jury. Watkins said the rebirthing therapy was necessary in Candace's case, and rather than showing remorse, came off as defensive. Ponder still sang the praises of rebirthing therapy, calling it a, quote, wonderful experience, and said that Candace could breathe through the sheet, stating, it's not like wrapping someone in plastic. The jury found them both guilty of the most serious charge, reckless child abuse resulting in death. However, facing a 16- to 48-year sentence, the judge decided to hand down the minimum sentence of only 16 years, based on the fact that there was no evidence that they had intended to harm Candace. Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel were allowed to plea bargain their charges down to criminally negligent child abuse and were given 10 years probation and ordered to complete 1,000 hours of community service. Jean Newmaker testified as a witness in the trial of Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder. In exchange, her testimony would not be used as evidence against her at her own trial. She then pled guilty to neglect and child abuse resulting in death and was given a four-year suspended sentence. She would not be required to spend any time behind bars because, the judge said, she and Candace had been victims of quack psychology. The prosecutor asked that at least Jean Newmaker should have her nursing license revoked, but the judge refused to make that ruling, saying it would be pointless. She was required to serve 400 hours of community service and attend grief counseling, after which she was allowed to have the conviction expunged from her record. Connell Watkins appealed her sentence, arguing that she and Julie Ponder should have been tried separately. She lost the appeal. Released on parole in 2008 under intense supervision, she was required to live in a halfway house and wear an ankle bracelet that monitored her whereabouts. She was also prohibited from having contact with children or working in the counseling field. She had served seven years of her 16-year sentence when released. Between 1995 and 2005, five children reportedly died from practices related to some form of attachment therapy. In 2002, the American Psychological Association condemned the use of rebirthing techniques, calling them, quote, extreme methods that can pose serious risk and should not be used under any circumstances, unquote. In 2006, the United States Senate approved resolutions stating that therapeutic rebirthing techniques were deemed dangerous and now prohibited by law. The states of Colorado and North Carolina had already passed similar legislation as a result of Candace's death. These were known as Candace's Laws. The tragedy of this case is not only that a little girl lost her life, but that her short time on Earth 
was filled with adults who, even though they loved her, let her down at every turn. Parents, grandparents, social workers, foster parents, and finally her adoptive mother all contributed to her sad life and tragic death. The fact that Candace exhibited some behavioral issues should have come as no surprise to anyone after she'd endured a life of hardship, instability, and constant struggle and disappointment. Even so, she desperately wanted to stay with her mother, siblings, and grandparents, but she wasn't given that choice. She was ripped away from the family she knew and loved and given to a stranger. When she didn't respond in the way that was expected of her, she was considered troubled and flawed and told she needed to participate in therapy to be fixed. But instead of being helped, she was suffocated to death, her pleas for help ignored. There's no happy ending to the story, but perhaps a lesson can be learned. We must remember that children are without power and their voices often go unheard. We, as the adults, should do better to reach out to the children we know and love, and even those that we don't, who may be struggling and in need of someone to see them, to hear them, and advocate for their needs. One way we can help children is by supporting their caretakers. Both Angie and Mary struggled to raise their children, having had no good parenting role models themselves. David Davis, Candace's beloved papa, had this to say. Both Mary and Angie had a 100% desire to be good mothers. Trouble was, they were never taught how. There are many single parents struggling to do the best they can for their children. There are also children who were raised in the foster care system and are left to fend for themselves on the day they age out of that system, many without a reliable support system. If you'd like to help, you can start by going online to singleparentadvocate.org or dooroftope.us to donate or volunteer. To help a foster child, you can become a court-appointed special advocate, mentor a child in foster care, or donate supplies to foster care organizations, and there are many other ways you can help. For more information, go to adoptuskids.org or togetherwerise.org. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once again, I'd like to thank Lorena Garcia for her help in researching this episode. You can become a Patreon supporter to get bonus episodes, a welcome packet with merchandise, early release episodes when available, and more. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to become a patron. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.